0: So he's saying words, and I want to ask you guys, what did you mean by it? Um, what did you mean by take my feet, make my feet? Take my, I don't even know. <laughs> kind of lost the drama there a little bit. Sorry. Um, take my feet deeper than they'd wander. How, how's it go, Jennifer? Yeah. Okay. Okay, what about the feet? Deeper than they'd wander. Take me deeper than my feet would ever wander. That's the one! <laughs> I am not musically inclined, that's why I'm not up here. Sorry. Deeper than my feet would wander. Take me. That's what we asked. You guys all saying it. That's what you asked. You asked God to take your feet, meaning you, your body, deeper than you would voluntarily wander. Voluntarily. Right? What do we mean by that? Because that's a it's an aggressive thing. That's a tough ask right there, isn't it? Like you're you're going to wander, right? And when we wander from the faith, so first of all, kids, thanks for being in here. Uh, I hope that this message this morning is going to be fairly deep. It's going to be, it, you're, you're not going to really be able to relate to it, and uh, some of it. And as you get older, you're going to relate to it more, because it's about suffering. And, and honestly, um, you know, that's not fair, because you, you suffer as kids too. Usually your parents make light of it, and they go, ah, oh, you're not suffering that bad. This isn't that bad. But the reality is, to you, it is bad. Um, And so this is what we're going to be talking about this morning. But here's the question, right? Like when we wander, when we wander and stray from the faith, um, it can be difficult. And we can find ourselves in difficult places, can't we? Um, But... We just ask God to take us to a place that's even deeper than that, so that our faith would grow. That's what we sang. We say, "Hey, it's OK for us to suffer. It's OK for us to go through these things. If the end result is that my faith will be stronger." So that's, that's, that's what we all say, and that's what Peter is talking about in this. And this morning, what he's going to do is he's going to take, um, he's going he's to give some more, how do you, I respond in the midst of suffering, and then he's, we're going to spend the vast majority of our time talking about how to be encouraged in the midst of suffering. How do we endure it? How do we deal with it? So that's what we're going to be doing this morning as we jump into 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 8. Let me start by praying. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we can ask bold things like that. Knowing that you have good in store for us. That the end result your glory is all that we care about. And we know that, that in seeking your glory, we will be blessed. And we will experience peace and joy and contentment that, that this world does not have. And I pray that this morning as I speak these words that we would end this morning walking out of here, being encouraged, being encouraged by you and by what you've done through your son Jesus Christ, and it's in His name that we pray. Amen. All right, so hopefully you have your Ephesians journals things. If not, there's more out there, and um, you know, or you have a Bible because we're gonna I'm gonna have you guys write some stuff as we as we jump through this because Peter seems to go off the rails just a little bit during this section, and he kind of. It seems as though he loses his, his uh, track of what he's thinking about as he's writing. But because we know that Scripture is inspired by God, we know that that cannot be true, right? And so uh, what I'm going to do today is, is basically go, here's, here's what he's talking about. And, and what's so important is the context, right? Like, you, can't, you would never just pick up somebody's letter and just read the middle of it, and yet this is what we do every week, Right? We pick up a letter and we read the middle of it and we go, what is he saying here? And maybe you do this in your own scriptural Bible reading. I would encourage you not to do that. I would encourage you to try to put these things together as, as a unit as they are, right? Read, sit down and read all whopping five chapters of First Peter in a sitting where you can read the full context together. Read Ephesians, right? A lot of these letters are super short, and you can read in the context of what Peter has do- done, right? Last week we talked about this. How do you deal with the oppression and injustice of the government? How do you submit to that? How do you deal with uh, injustice and, and uh, unfairness from your employer? How do you deal with that? How do you deal inside of a marriage relationship where it seems off kilter and there's oppression and there's uh, maybe an unbelieving, right? And the, the premise across all of those was what? That there is an unbelieving husband, that there is an unbelieving employer, an unbelieving government. And how do we then respond as believers? How do we live as lights? How do we live as salt in this earth? Now, what I did leave out, and Peter doesn't talk about it, so I had to leave, I didn't have to leave it out, but... But there's a, there's a uh, I actually brought this up to my kids. Children, there's, there's a, uh, children, obey your parents. And I want to note, it doesn't say submit to your parents. It just says, obey them. <laughs> so you're welcome, parents. Um, but I mean, that's really, right? In each of these relationships, that's the pieces, right? There's one thing that he has not addressed, and that's us. Well then, how do you react? How do you deal when your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ are the offenders, are the oppressors, are the ones levying injustice or insults? In the King James Version, will say, railing against you. And honestly, you guys... I would argue that that's where most of our emotional and uh, emotional suffering comes from, is those people that are closest to us, right? Because they, they have a, they're closer to our heart, right? And so the deeper our relationship is, the deeper you can wound us. And that's how we are built. And so when we, look around this room, right? Like when we gather together and we see these people and we interact and we, so we want to disciple each other and invest in each other's lives and, and reflect Christ, then that, that means that sometimes we're going to mess it up. And you might be the messer-upper, or you might be the person that is on the receiving side of that. And so what Peter is going to talk about is go, hey, let's talk about that. How do you respond to that suffering? So 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 He says, finally, again, this is where it's important to read the context, right? He said, likewise, 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 finally, all of you, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. So his solution to unbelieving peoples and organizations was to submit, what is it to us within the church? Bless, bless each other. How how do we bless each other? He says that in verse eight, right? He walks through each one of these things. He says, and this is how we know it's it's to the Christians, right? It's to the followers of Christ. He says, have unity of mind, a a united purpose. Some versions will say like-mindedness. That doesn't mean we agree on political issues. Doesn't mean we agree on any of those type of secondary things. It means that we all have one purpose in our life, and that's to build God's kingdom and to glorify God with our lives. That's the like-mindedness. I look around this crowd and I go, I know all of you want that. I know that. And I'm looking around real quick, make sure I don't offend anybody, but we don't have any guests here right now. I mean, there might be somebody tuning in. I know all of you. I know all of you have that same desire in your lives. That's a beautiful thing to be able to say that. And so we all have, so I'm just telling you that this is the case. So you can look around and if you don't know somebody... Know that they have the same desire in their lives that you do. Like-mindedness, unity of mind, sympathy. Well, this is a tough one. And this this falls into our arrogant thinking. But sympathy, not empathy, sympathy is saying, I know their circumstances. I may not have experienced their circumstances, but I see them or I know of them. And we all have different circumstances. We have different things that we are currently dealing with. We have different things in our past that have built us and made us the way we are, that that cause us to respond in different ways. Maybe being the messer-upper, right? But... But we can have sympathy towards each other because we know that life is rough, that we're complex. I mean, how beautiful is it that there is not one other person here that is just like you? Wouldn't that be weird? Our God is so unique that even twins, right, even twins are different people. They have different characteristics, that's how amazing our God is. And so what he's saying is, like, we need to have sympathy towards each other. And then he says that we should have brotherly love. Okay, well, that's an easy one. But, but is it? Husbands, love your wife the way Christ loved the church. That's a love that is never going to be achievable. And yet always something we're pursuing. And that goes for all of us towards each other. And this is, this is brotherly love, but it's, it's uh, the same for sisterly love, right? Like it's, it's us all loving each other the way Christ loves. I, I, for those of you who um, have been around for a little bit, Rob and I used to have this thing where, where he would tell me that he loved me, and I could not say it back. And this, and this goes into a much longer thing. I didn't even plan on talking about this. But, but he would say, I love you, Jonathan. Like, in the middle of a sermon, like, I love you, Jonathan. And I'd be like, because I didn't, I didn't know what love was, honestly. I knew what loving my wife was. I knew what loving my children was. But I didn't know what brotherly Christian love was. It's not that you love people. I mean, Molson and I love each other. I like her. She's a cool cat, right? I enjoy spending time with her. More than any of you. You got a problem with that? And so, and, and, and we picked each other, right? Like, I didn't pick any of you. Just being honest. And you guys didn't pick each other. And so, well, I mean... Obviously, some of you picked each other, right? But but that's not Christian love. Christian love is that I love you because you're a child of God. And it took me so long to get to the point where I understood that. A tender heart, soft not a hardened heart. And that goes along with the sympathy piece. How do we respond to each other? We have a tender heart. We allow ourselves to be moved by another's plight. We're not so consumed with our own frustrations and difficulties that we can't relate to somebody else's. And you guys, like, this is a tough one because y'all can list, list off everything that you're going through. And if And if we just hunker down and just focus on our own dealings, we're missing how we're supposed to be blessing each other. And a humble mind. And that's the root of all of those things, right? We have to have humility. The same humility that's spoken of of Christ in Philippians 2, where it says, have the same mind, right? Think the way Christ thought. He wasn't holding on to some position or some privilege or some reputation. He gave it up. He laid it aside for what? For his enemies. Not even for people who he had some affiliation with, not for people who who liked him, not for people who trusted him, but for people who actually hated him. That's what Christ did. And Paul tells us to have that same humility. So why do we bless? Why, why, why do we have these emotions? Why do we live like this? It says, um, bless, and this is the second part of verse 9, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Okay. Now, you read that, and you should read that as aberrant, as, as, as that doesn't seem like that fits with the gospel message. So, so the, the nicer I am to you, then the more nice things will happen to me. Is that what Peter is saying here? Because we should read it and we go, eh. and that's what I do. And then I have to go research, right? And go, well, what does he mean by this? Because it, it seems to address that. It seems to say that you will be blessed if you are a blesser. And this is the prosperity gospel, right? This is, this is I will get good things. Well, tell me what I need to do in order to get good things, Sounds good. Just tell me what the list is. How many people do I need to be nice to? How many many people do I need to walk across the street? How many people, you know what I mean? Like, what do I need to do? And if if the end result is me, then great. Well, that's a problem because that's not scriptural and that's not biblical. And in fact, it doesn't even fit into the context of what Peter's talking about because he's talking about the suffering we're gonna be going through, which doesn't make sense at all with that statement. It can't mean that. Because Peter would have completely derailed from what he's talking about. In fact, more closely, what he's addressing is the same thing Paul addressed in Ephesians 4.1. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You see, we will inherit a blessing. We know this to be true. Jesus has already secured that for us. We have a living hope. And so we can bless not worrying about what we're going to get back in return because we've already been given the blessing. We are heirs. We are sons and daughters. The ESV, and I don't know what your guys' versions say, but the ESV talks about this as being um, obtaining a blessing, but some of you might say inheriting a blessing. And that's actually the proper word is inherit. You are heirs. You are going to get it. There's not a question about it. You are a son or daughter of God if you have confessed Jesus as your Lord, if you trust in him. And look at what Paul says. He says, uh, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. It's almost... Exactly what Peter lists off as how we ought to relate to one another, isn't it? And so this is the consistent message of Scripture. And then what Peter's going to do is he's going to quote Psalm 34. In fact, in uh, chapter 2, verse 12, he quoted Psalm 34. So I'd encourage you after this, maybe go back and read it, because Peter apparently really liked it, or he had been reading it right before uh, he wrote his letter, because it was fresh in his mind. And so he goes back and references Psalm 34 a couple times. So you can write that next to this if you don't have it in your notes already. And he goes on to say what what we receive out of this blessing. And he says, verse 10, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That first part, whoever desires to love life and see good days. All right, well, Jonathan, that sounds like he just doubled down on what you just said he wasn't saying. I want good days do we all want good days? (laughs) I want a vacation where we don't get injured. (laughs) I want, times two. (laughs) I want um, cool weather and be able to have a fire and hang out outside. I want, right, I want to read a good book. I want peace. I want, I want good days. Where are the good days? Maybe we experience one here and there. Maybe you kids are thinking, oh, I know where the good days are. <laughs> it's when my parents leave. <laughs> it's when the babysitter comes over. It's when I'm finally 18 and I'm out. It's when I can drive, right? Those are the good days that we're all looking for. I remember when, I was, uh, when, when our girls were younger, I remember the good days for me was when they could ride bikes. That's, that was what I was waiting for. I was waiting for the day where we could go on a bike ride. I think we did that for maybe, I don't know, just a little bit, and then, and then the bikes rusted and, you know, whatever, anyway. Um, but what are the good days? What are the good days? Um, I think we're a little myopic in, in how we, uh, in what we think are good days. And I think the, the reality is, is that, the good day definition is none of those things. That's not what Peter's talking about. That's not a good day. Um, a good day is when Jeff plays, right? A good day is when Jeff walks. <laughs> How about that? That's probably way better. <laughs> Sorry. That's very selfish of us. A <laughs> good day is Jeff driving, But what leads up to those days? What makes that a good day? Bad days? Suffering? Turn over with me to Acts chapter 16, verse 22. And write this in the side if if you've got this. Circle good days and write Acts 16, 22. Um, So remember, Peter's writing this letter. And in fact, Silas is the one That's probably the one that's actually writing it, right? We talked about that at the beginning. Well, this story is about Silas. Um, Silas and Paul were in Philippi, and they ended up uh, getting in trouble. Um, Not because they did something wrong, (laughs) because they're preaching the gospel, right? And it says in verse 22, the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them. And gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison. Inner prison, that, 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 that's important. That's the, the dark, dark, dark place there. And fastened their feet in the stocks. I can almost guarantee none of us have experienced this. None of us have probably even experienced one piece of this, I think. You can find me afterwards. I'd love to hear your story if you have. But probably not. That's a bad day. Would you agree? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. You know, we've been, um, I knew I was going to have a hard time getting through this one. Um, You know, we've been talking about how, why are we to submit to the government? Why are we to submit in these different circumstances and these oppressions and injustices and all these things? And what did we say over and over so they could see Christ, so they would know Christ, right? That our perspective wasn't just temporal, it wasn't just about our suffering, but it was that that God would be glorified in the midst of our chaos, in the midst of our circumstances, that, that somehow the way that we live, the way that we submit, the way that we love would be glorifying to God. And this is exactly what's going on. The prisoners were just random dudes, probably bad dudes, right? In the inner prison with their feet in stocks. These are the people. They weren't rubbing shoulders with like people who were like looking for God, They didn't come into the church. They were out there in the darkest places. And what does God do? He picks them up and he goes, I need you to go there. I need you to go in the darkest, dirtiest place. And maybe never come out. It says, the prisoners were listening to them, in verse 26, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. There's so much great theology in this. (laughs) Um, And yes, I cry over theology. Um, So God works this incredible miracle, right? Without a doubt. This is obviously God doing this, that an earthquake wouldn't unshackle, right, Um, your feet. So all, and it happens to all of them, Paul and Silas and these other prisoners, all of them, right? Like this happens. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. So <laughs> why did the other prisoners stay? Like I could get why Paul and Silas stayed, right? Because they're like, well, we're supposed to submit. Man, this, is, this, is, this train wrecks your plans, this story train wrecks any any if you think that god has opened a door for you and you're like oh god opened the door that's actually really bad theology because sometimes he opens the doors and he doesn't want you walking through it sometimes he cracks open a door in this most miraculous amazing way and he goes you know what I want you to stay. And I don't know how Paul and Silas knew that. I have no idea. Maybe they were reading Psalm 34. I have no idea. But they stayed. And somehow the other prisoners stayed. To what effect? To save the jailer's life. (laughs) Some random dude. Who, the reason why he was about to kill himself is because if he loses the prisoners, he is going to be killed, right? And so he's like, I, I need to kill myself before I get killed because it's going to be bad, right? So that's the context of that. And so Paul cried with a loud voice, "Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And troubling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved?" This is how our God works in the most complex and difficult, confusing situations. And some of you are going through that. Why would God allow me to suffer in this way? Why would God allow this person to suffer in this way? Why would, why do these things happen? And that's a tough, tough question one that Paul and Silas were probably asking until they saw the good day and they saw God work. You see, a good day isn't defined by us relaxing or us being comforted. A good day is when we're in sync with God and we're watching his kingdom be built. That's a good day because that brings us more joy that could last a lifetime. And so this is what Peter is referring to when he says, these are the good days. This is is why we bless, because when we bless, we receive blessings. We live lives that are building God's kingdom. And so then what he turns to is, okay, so this is how you're supposed to respond. How do we suffer well? Let me encourage you in your suffering. We're going to roll through these next few verses As he outlines, really, for us, how do we do this well? How how can we endure? Because sometimes the suffering takes all that we have. We go, I I can't do another day of this. And maybe you're there. Maybe you're at the point where you're like, "I, I just can't. I can't do this anymore. Let me encourage you as Peter does, as we walk through this and go, there is encouragement in the suffering. There is. So look at, um, well, before we get there, the, the first one, and one that we kind of just identified in Acts 16, is that God controls suffering. It's not out of his control. Because with that, if you're suffering right now, it's not outside of God's purview. He's not sitting there going, man, I wish I could do something about that, but I just can't. That's not our God. Somehow, someway, he's using it. That's a tough one. I know it's tough. And this is where our faith is challenged. Because in the midst of suffering is when we accuse him, is when we challenge him, is when we get angry Look what it says in verse 13 through 17 here. He says, Paul says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. He's like, God's in control of this. Your salvation's secured. You will be blessed. You're an heir. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. I'll just stop there for a second. And he says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. This is, this is incredible because what he's saying here is that in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord. Be prepared to have a reason. Know why you have hope. Know why you have hope that this suffering isn't it. This isn't the end of it. This isn't your measure for all eternity. Thank God it's not. There is a path that leads to that. But that's not what we have for those who trust in Jesus Christ. He says, be prepared to give them the reason for your hope. But do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And look what it says in verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. God wills that we suffer sometimes. I know that's hard. But that's true because he's a sovereign God. And so he allows it to happen. But he uses it to set himself up for the good days, for you to experience the good days, for him to be glorified. That's why. That's why he does it. The second point is that he, he goes on in, in verse 18, he's going to say that Christ suffered for us. It wasn't just, you can be encouraged in your suffering because, you know what? Christ did the suffering as well. Look what it says in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. He's like, you get this? Like, you're suffering. You haven't suffered to the point of death yet. Yet. Oh, by the way, you're suffering. You're not suffering for somebody else. You're suffering for yourself, right? Like, you're suffering. All of our suffering is personal to some extent. I mean, obviously, there's some emotional, right? Like, sympathetic and and empathy and stuff like that. But, But Christ, what was he suffering for? The sins of humanity? The just for the unjust? The righteous for the unrighteous? God himself, right? The son of God came and suffered, absorbed the wrath of God that we all deserved. That's the suffering that he endured for us. That's injustice. Isn't it? Isn't that injustice? That Jesus would take on all of that, unfairly? You see, the only reason it's not injustice is because he's part of the Godhead. He is God. He sacrificed himself. He chose to do this willingly. That's what makes this beautiful. That's what makes it grace. It's undeserved merit. Grace isn't fair. Thank God it's not. Grace is intentionally unfair. It's God choosing to give us merit to make us righteous while we hated him. Just get that, right? All of your hearts, all of our hearts hated God by default. Our sinful nature makes us haters of God, enemies of God, rebellious. We don't want anything to do with him. We don't see his purpose in our life. That's where we're at before God does the work in our hearts to change us, to change our affections, to make us love the things he loves and hate the things he hates. We didn't earn it. We didn't do anything to deserve it. And yet, God chose that for us. The next thing is, he has a patient and promised rescue. Now, I will tell you that this one uh, is hotly debated, and so we're going to We're going to make sure we stay focused on what Peter's point is in the context of this letter. He's encouraging us in the midst of our suffering, okay? And so what he's saying is there is a rescue that's coming. It's promised. It's going to come. God's been patient in the midst of your suffering, but there is a rescue. And look at what he says in verse 19. He's talking about Jesus being made alive in the spirit. And he says, in which, meaning in the spirit, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now, there's a lot of conjecture as to what Peter is saying here. And In fact, one of the apostles' creeds talks about that Jesus descended into hell and preached to those who had been before Noah. Um, What does that look like? How did Jesus go and preach? Why did he go and preach when we know that Jesus was making himself aware to the people in the Old Testament? We know that through scripture. And so it's a a very challenging thing and and I encourage you, by all means, go and Google it and look to see. I, I will tell you. I personally believe that he, in fact, did um, go and preach um, in hell to uh, the people that were there. Um, and that, but again, that's not the point. Peter is saying that as like a fact. What's his point? This is encouragement. Right on the side of your Bibles, if you would, Genesis chapter six, verse five. Why is this encouragement? This is pre-flood. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is the days of Noah. This is what he's talking about. That's what it looked like. You think Noah and his family was suffering? Think about that. You can't say those words to our society. As much as we can say... Life is tough and things aren't the way they should be. They aren't that. And in fact, what ends up happening? God destroys the earth as a result. It was that bad. And yet he waited patiently and endured the enemies of God. And Noah built the ark. And then what does he do? He rescues eight people. (laughs) That's a small number. And that's Peter's point. God's not unaware of the suffering. He did this back in Noah's day. The, the, The world was way worse, the suffering was way worse. And yet, God patiently waited and endured and rescued his faithful people. That's his point here. And then he goes on and he says um, that we also get a clean conscience. Be encouraged because we can have a clean conscience. And he says this and he ties us to baptism. In verse 21 he says, uh, baptism which corresponds to this, meaning the flood And we can get into a whole nother baptism. Peter just drops these like one sentence things that are like super deep theology and he just assumes that you know, okay? So we're we're unfortunately keeping it in the context here, but we can dive in any of these things. But he says, baptism, which corresponds to this, the flood, um, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, so we're going to have baptisms next week. Super exciting. Really exciting. It's, Peter says here that it saves you. Did anybody else go, I didn't know that was in the Bible. I didn't think that that's, that's not what we ever say. Because it, that's not what he's saying, okay? So let's, let's walk through this. So he's, he's saying that this baptism, right, saves you, and look at what he says, not as a removal of dirt from the body, right? Like, this isn't functional. It's not that you're just getting clean. And so if, we want, if you want to get baptized, you're not coming up here because you needed a bath, right? What is it? He says, it's an appeal to God for a good conscience. We, we minimize this. What does a good conscience tell us? A good conscience says that you can go to sleep well at night. I have a good conscience because I sleep really well. No, I'm just joking. Well, I'm not. But what's a good conscience? A good conscience is that you are going to mess up, aren't you? A good conscience says that you don't have guilt and shame associated with that. Well, how do you not have guilt and shame? How does the world not have guilt and shame for all the things that they do? Ignore it? Medicate it? Drown it out with alcohol? What does the world do with all of their guilt and shame? I don't know. Thank God I don't know. Because what I know is that what do we do with our failures and our sins? We repent and we're forgiven. And that's it. That's it, that's the end of the story. There's no guilt, there's no shame. There's, I know that I have a sinful nature. I know, we all know, right? Sympathetically, we know that we are all wrestling with the same sinful nature. And our battle is not in flesh and blood. There is a battle that is raging inside of each one of us. And that's our obedience to the Holy Spirit versus our worldly sinful nature. And so what does he say? What is baptism? It saves you because you go and say, I'm appealing to God. God, will you give me a good conscience? Because I don't know how to do this myself. That's what it is. That's salvation, right? We go, we have no hope. We have no way of having a good conscience unless we're trusting in Jesus Christ. And so be encouraged as you're going through this suffering that that he solves the conscience part. You don't have have to suffer through guilt and shame. Be encouraged. Be encouraged because he has already done all the work for you. And even when our suffering is because of our mess-ups, even when that happens, God's still in that. And he's still forgiving. That's a beautiful thing. And so when we endure and we're going through this suffering, we can rest on these different pieces of encouragement. And the last one is the best one of all. In verse 22, he says, be encouraged. He says, Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. That's where he's at right now. Your suffering will end and you will be with Christ. You guys, like, when we, when we start this and we're like, man, I just don't like the suffering and it's, it's horrible and it's tough. Peter goes, be encouraged. You can endure the suffering. You can. God has not given us more than what we can endure. He will equip us so that we can glorify Him and we can build His kingdom and not our own. And so we can be encouraged in the midst of suffering. And this is a beautiful thing. And as we as we continue on in chapters four and five in First Peter, we're going to see that that men like we can say what we just sang. Take me to the place I wouldn't go myself strengthen my faith, God. Because that's what I want more than anything. And for you kids in here, as you're, as you're like going through life and you're trying to figure things out, I want you to be thinking about that, that God is preparing you. Because life is tough at times. Sometimes it's really good. Sometimes it's really bad. But you're gonna deal with things. And so, what what Peter is saying here is know that God is for you, that he's with you, that he'll never leave you, and nobody can take you from him. Praise God. Jesus wins. Let me pray.